Hello and welcome to another episode of Every Voice Counts. I'm Senator Mubina Jaffer and today I'm really pleased to welcome Lex Gill to this podcast. Ms. Gill is a research fellow at the Citizen Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs, a faculty of the University of Toronto where she studies the role of law in regulating technology and preserving civil liberties. But she also practices law in Montreal for Trudel Johnston and L'Esperance, which is a well-established law firm specialized in class actions and public interest litigation. Furthermore, Ms. Gill teaches at McGill University's Faculty of Law. And the most exciting thing at the moment is soon she's going to, exp- uh, to be uh, uh, re- receiving a baby boy or she's pregnant. So this is a very exciting time for her as well. And I want to start off by saying to you, uh, Lex, where do you get time to do all these things? It's just amazing. <laughs> do you ever sleep? No, well, you know, I have to say we have a very good coffee shop down the street from our office. So that's <laughs> I'm very lucky. <laughs> but, you know, um, all of these different things kind of feed into each other too, right? And that's the joy of um, of being a real, a real nerd um, is that all your passions can kind of uh, intersect and overlap and nurture each other. So it's a joy. And thank you so much for the invitation. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. But, you know, Lex, when you came and testified in front of the committee, you know, I, we could feel your passion. We could really feel how strongly you felt. And so I was thinking you do all these things, and I'm sure you're very passionate about everything you do. So I truly admire your, you know, um, even coming to the Senate after everything else you do. So I'm, I'm respectful to everything you do. And uh, and most of all, as I said to you earlier, the best thing in your life is soon going to come, your little precious <laughs> baby. So that'd be amazing. You and so my mom you, are on the same team. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be the best time in your life. Uh, you know, Lex, we had the pleasure to welcome you at the Senate, Senate uh, Standing Committee on, uh, on National Security and Defense, when we were studying Bill S-7, a bill, as you know, aimed to create a new and a, I would say a lower, lower legal test for border security officers to look into travelers' personal phones and computers at the border. It really, really bothers me that they have lowered the test to look at devices that have our whole personal life in it, our family pictures, our personal pictures, our banking information, our work information. Everything is on either your laptop, your iPad, your phone. And for that, the government has seen appropriate to deem a lower test. And that's what we are going to discuss today. But before we go into me asking you questions, do you want to share with us how you feel about this bill generally? And uh, like I'm feeling that what's happening with our, our human rights? What's happening? What's, how could we go on a lower standard where our whole life is in our devices? How could we do this? And like your um, you know, general opinion on this bill. Yeah, well, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, um, in, a, in a case called Pike that came out very recently, Justice Harris in Ontario uh, 
said, and I shared this with the Senate too, because I thought it was perfect. He said, a search of the data in a personal digital device digs deep into the heart of who we are. And it, to, to me, that's, I mean, that's it. Our, our phones, our laptops, they know more about us than we know about ourselves. Uh, and it's not just our own personal privacy rights either. We have to think we have, you know, we carry around intimate information about all of the people in our lives. Uh, as a practicing lawyer, I carry around privileged and confidential information. When journalists cross the border, they're crossing with information about their sources. When doctors travel, they travel with their patients' information. And so this idea of privacy as a kind of purely individual right, too, uh, doesn't even tell the whole story. Really, privacy is is relational. It's about the obligations we have to each other as well. And so, you know, when I when I think about this bill, um, I, I think also about, uh, you know, about about uh, my students, because as you mentioned, I, I teach uh, part time at McGill. Uh, and there's this idea that we're, you know, courts and the legislature are supposed to be in a dialogue. So, you know, parliament enacts a law, it gets tested in the courts. Sometimes the courts go, you know what, this actually uh, doesn't hold up to constitutional scrutiny and they send it back. And, and what's supposed to happen in that dialogue is that parliament is supposed to listen and adjust and strengthen the laws to match the, the, the rigorous constitutional standard that people in this country, uh, you know, are, are entitled to, to have respected. And so when, you know, when you look at a bill like this one, where the language proposed is reasonable general concern, which is a made up standard that doesn't exist anywhere else in law, um, you can't, I mean, I can't help but feel disheartened, right? Because it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, like, what's the meeting that led to that language? Like, I feel like uh, it's like people sat around a boardroom and they were like, okay, how do we put a standard in law that allows us to keep doing exactly what we're doing, despite the fact that the courts told us that it wasn't constitutionally good enough, and uh, and kick the can another five or ten years so that we can have another court of appeal tell us we were wrong later on? And I mean, I just think... Um, I think people in Canada deserve better. Um, you know, they deserve legislation that is uh, not trying to get the to, to the lowest common denominator or to the to the you know the kind of intrusion that maybe we can arguably get away with. You know, we deserve we deserve this sort of gold standard of rights protection, and and I think that this kind of language, uh, I, you know, I wish I. I wish I was a little more optimistic, but I, I don't. I don't feel that it, it takes um, takes people's rights very seriously. And uh, and I, I, you know, I was very happy to see how actively Senate worked uh, to respond to it. Um, you, you know, uh, I feel the same way as you do, and that's why I really wanted to have this chat with you. I feel what's happening when I read this. I was just beside myself. I got my i I have been so upset about this, and you know. I have to admit, this is coming from a liberal government, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, supposed to be people to have have more respect for the charter. And it seems like there is none, none at all. And as you know, they're saying that the Supreme Court in Denfold decided that we could have a lower standard. The, the court gave us a permission to do the lower standard, but they, the court said, you decide. And even if the court gave us the permission to have a lower standard, as parliamentarians, we cannot, we cannot have a lower standard than what it takes to open the mail. 
for to open the mail, you need a reasonable uh, suspicion. Uh, and here, reasonable general concern. And as you said, that's for me, that's an old, no, uh, a new kind of uh, wording, which I've looked all, oh, I've had people search for me. All, it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And so I don't even think that a, a group of people got together and, uh, and came up with this. I just think that some, somebody in the minister's office just decided this is what it will be. I don't want to say it was the minister because I don't want to be uh, 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 speculating on that. But this, where does this come from? And it really frustrates me, you know. And uh, that's why when you spoke, I was really happy. And what, what you said helped me to get my colleagues to pass the amendment that I uh, put in for the Senate. But I have another question for you. We heard a lot in committee about striking the right balance between border security and privacy rights with the new test at the border. Did you have any concerns when you first read Bill 7? And as, as, as you probably have reflected since your testimony and even now, to, to, to have from reasonable suspicion to reasonable general concern, what does general concern mean? You know, yes. and so... Uh, I'm really concerned about between privacy rights and what's the right balance. Mm, there's so much there. So, I mean, one of the things that you mentioned is that the standard to search mail at the border is reasonable suspicion. And, uh, you know, I can't help but think looking at the legislation, like how how is it that if I, I put my cell phone in a self-addressed envelope with a, with a stamp on it, it gets more constitutional protection than if it's in my pocket? Um, you know, that, that can't be right. Um, but... You know, um, I, I was pretty familiar with the Canfield decision, like well before this this bill came out, and I think it's interesting that there are there are um, representatives uh, who read that decision as suggesting that uh, a lower standard is is perfectly okay. When I read the court in Canfield, uh, what I see are judges who say it's not our role to uh, come to a final conclusion on this. Uh, legislators are are better set out when they look at a case like Fearin, which is a case about the uh, the ability of police to do a cursory search of your phone when you're arrested for very specific reasons. There, the standard is you know the person's already been lawfully arrested, and then there's additional measures that are put in place. Uh, to make sure that there are privacy protections for the phone search. And the court said, okay, well, this is not exactly the same as a border search, but Furin might be one example we could look to. But that that is a, it's a limited search and a pretty rigorous standard, and the person already has to have done something meriting an arrest. So I think this idea that um, Canfield gives Parliament license to adopt a lower standard than reasonable suspicion, I mean, to me, that's a bit of a stretch of a reading if you look at those reasons uh, as a whole. Um, so, I mean, that's the that's part of it. I think that the other thing is, uh, you know, when we talk about balancing rights, we have to be really careful, right? Because uh, certainly we're balancing people's privacy rights on the one hand, um, and on the other, there are questions of border security. I would add, you know, when we talk about rights, we really have to be so clear that when we create these kinds of broad discretionary powers that are hard to review, we're also putting people's equality rights on the table because we know that where these kinds of standards are too flexible and too permissive, they end up being used pretextually 
for racial profiling, uh, to target members of minority groups. And, and uh, we, we know that plays out. We see it in the policing context. We've seen it in the border context. Uh, and and we, we can't pretend that that's not a, a consequence. So I think that but, you know, when, when we talk about secure, obviously, you know, nobody's going to be against border security. Uh, but there's a difference between security and administrative convenience uh, or uh, what's easy or what we can do really quickly or what we can do a lot of. And I think it's important, um, you know, when we think about this balance, that it's not just about uh you know, uh, well, it's hard. It's harder for border officials to pl- to apply an objective standard, so we just want them to have complete unchecked discretion. I mean, that to me isn't a security concern. That's um, that's that's people not wanting to invest the time and resources into respecting people's constitutional rights, and and that's not a balance um, that I that we're entitled to engage in. So, yeah, uh, you know that. Uh, um... Uh, what really bothers me about this is that the, the government is very loosely saying, as you s- said, in Canfield, that the judge gave them permission. But as I said to you earlier, even if the judge gave permission, but the judge left it to, on parliamentarians to come up mm-hmm. with the right test. We know, we should know what our, what our, what the circumstances of our communities are. We should be there protecting them. So I'm I am really, uh, as you are very concerned, and I want to repeat this, that the normal test is reasonable suspicion. And now we have reasonable general concern. And, you know, Lex, I was so concerned when uh, I asked the officials, so how do you know, how do you assess reasonable general concerns? And they said, how the person is behaving, how the person is breathing, how the person, what country he has come from. Is it a country that, you know, has people go for, uh, for uh, you know, and get pornographic information? Uh, is it, uh, and well, there was an, how, if they are sweating. And, and I said, what other indicators? Because, you know, that can't be the only indicators. And they said, we can't share with you. And that bothered me the most because if you can't share with parliamentarians what the indicators are, they could have said to us that we will speak to privately and we would have arranged that. But if they can't even share this with parliamentarians, then how are they treating the public? And since since I asked that question, I've had many CBSA officers who have uh, racial racial uh, CBSA officer people of color have written to me and said that that's because they don't tell you what other indicators they teach us, like race and countries of origin, things like that. And so we are lowering the standard so that we could create racial profiling. Is that what we are doing, Lex? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny, uh, something came to mind when you were speaking, and it's that this this idea that, uh, you know, the, the court actually lets us have this lower standard. There's there's actually a 2013 decision from the Supreme Court called Chahill, where they the court specifically rejects the idea of, of what it calls generalized suspicion rather than sus- like um, specific reasonable suspicion in, in relation to a specific individual specifically because it opens the door to this kind of group-based 
um, discrimination, um, sort of pretextual searches, intrusions into people's rights um, that aren't justified and that just capture too many innocent individuals. And I think, um, you know, what uh, one thing that we see again and again is that when um, when law enforcement and, and other state officials have broad kinds of discretion, um, you know, um, there's always a reason to stop someone. There's always a reason to search that person. But what we also know about human cognition and uh, is that um, we often um, unconsciously make up the reasons after we do a thing um, and that our real reasons are, are much more likely to be informed by unconscious bias and prejudice that, that we all need to be doing work to, to sort of undermine and unpack. And so um, having a standard like reasonable suspicion, which isn't even a very high standard in law, right? Uh, you know, any, any other time uh, law enforcement want to search your phone or your laptop, they need a warrant on the basis of reasonable grounds. And so, you know, we're really already talking about a, re- a reduced standard in the border context. Um, you know, the, the reason we have standards like this is to protect against abuse, to protect against discretionary exercises of power. And, um, you know, we, we can't ign- ignore the reality that we live in a society that is, uh, you know, um, organized, colored by uh, racial prejudice, colonialism, um, the entire historical legacy of, of these issues, and th- that those are part of what inform in an officer's mind, whether or not they know it or are willing to admit it, what they consider suspicious, what they consider dangerous, who they see as a threat. Uh, and, you know, so we we need to constrain these kinds of powers uh, to limit the ways that those kinds of biases and prejudices manifest. Um so I, I think that's fundamental, and I and I think without it, you know, we 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 are guaranteed to see discriminatory effects in the exercise of these powers. Um, so you know, Lex, I I said to you that in the Customs Act, usually you have a test that is used for searching searching travelers at the border is reasonable grounds to suspect. For everything else, is reasonable grounds to suspect, whether it is for uh, for your person, whether it's to uh, to uh, if you have uh, you know um, not, uh, underestimated what goods you're bringing in, or the ser- origin of the goods, as I al- already said, to search mm-hmm. mail, and but here for searching the whole of our life. Our family photos, our personal photos, our banking information, uh, and you're a lawyer, so your clients' information, uh, everything they think they can search. And not this bill even doesn't cover uh, lawyer-client privilege, you know. And uh, we open our whole life, but we the government wants to set up a lower standard. Uh, This is what concerns me. How do you feel about that? Yeah, you know, I guess one thing I would add is that, um, you know, the the Customs Act scheme is about goods. It's about importing and exporting. It's about controlling what can come in and out of the country. Um, And of course, those are perfectly legitimate government objectives. But when we're talking about computers, uh, it seems a little strange to me to stay in that universe because we know that, um, you know, I can be in Canada and I can upload information to the internet. I can then I can wipe my computer. My computer can be blank when I cross the border. And then I can travel to the United States or any other country uh, with a, an empty laptop. 
And then I can just download that same information on the other side of the border. So there's never that that information never even crosses the border, um, you know, but it has gone from from one side to the other. So when we start treating the border as this special place where there's a special reason to search for information, I find that a little bit uh, bizarre. Like we don't have any evidence that people are more likely to be traveling with um, evidence of illegal information on their computers than they are when they're on either side of a border. And so to me, the idea that there's this um, very special and heightened government interest in doing those kinds of searches seems a little strange to me. Uh, you know, obviously, that's it's a little bit different when we're talking about something that has a really close nexus to um the border context. So for example, there's a suspicion that a person is traveling under a false identity, and then there's a desire to search their devices to to investigate that suspicion. But when we're just talking about, um, you know, uh, the whether or not illegal content in a more general way is stored on a device, I'm not really, I don't see a strong connection to the border context. And and when we think about the the absolute um, profound importance of the civil liberties at stake, the privacy interests, the consequences to people, the potential harms, and also just, you know, the, 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 we're talking, you know, there's what's on the phone or the laptop, but there's also what it means to a person to ha- to be subject to that kind of search. So if you're a perfectly innocent person, even, you still suffer the humiliation, the degradation, the inconvenience, uh, the feeling that you are a suspect of, of going through one of these searches. And I think that we have to understand that there's a there's a constitutional cost to that. Um, and that doesn't mean that border agents, uh, you know, are all, uh, you know, uh, have an obligation to only stop people who they're 100 percent. I mean, the nature of suspicion is that we're not sure. Right. But. I think that we we need to take those rights very seriously, and we need to think about the consequences for individuals. And, and we know also that uh, that that racialized people, in particular, are going to experience those harms very, very differently when you know or where you have a good inkling that the reason you're being stopped is, you know, nothing to do with any sort of objective indicator, but because the person working at the border perceives you to be a threat based on stereotypes, based on discriminatory attitudes. Um, and so I, I think that we just ha- we have to take that much more seriously than than perhaps we are. But you also involved a lot in technology law and things like that. And so have you seen anything previously that concerns you about government's practices perta- pertaining to people's data, especially me- metadata? And I wanted you to explain because there may be some people who don't know about me- me- metadata. What is that? And then your concerns. Oh, okay. So um, metadata is information about information, if that makes sense. So, uh, you know, when you have an email, for example, you can have the message that I'm sending you, but then you also have information like how big the message is, which lets me know if there's maybe an image attached, uh, things like the time I sent it, where I sent it from, the IP address I sent it from. So all the information about your information. And so, for example, a photo is going to have a bunch of metadata that isn't just the image. It's going to tell me where the picture was taken, when, on what type of camera, maybe who took it. And that kind of information has a really strong privacy interest as well. Uh, you know, we we often don't think about it that way, but there's a real um, 
investigative interest and there's a, a strong privacy interest in having that kind of information. It's used by law enforcement. The Supreme Court has re- repeatedly said that this kind of information is entitled to Section 8 charter protection. Um, but, um, you know, we uh, I, I wouldn't say that we're always perfect um, at understanding exactly how this kind of information can be used, collected, and stored. And certainly metadata, much more than content, is... Um, is susceptible of kind of a large scale analytics. And that kind of analytics, uh, you know, allows us to maybe make inferences about people's future behavior. So for example, uh, location data is a good example of that. So your phone always knows where it physically is and your phone is almost always with you. So if I have all the location data from your phone, that's not like a picture or a message, it's not content, but I can see everywhere you've been. And with that information, I can predict pretty well where you're going to be. So if you're always at the same school or the same church or you walk to work at a particular time of day, um, you know, those kinds of patterns of life, they they reveal a lot about who we are. They reveal, uh, you know, maybe your religious preferences or who you're dating or the fact that you're playing hooky from school. Um, and, and an awful lot more than that, too. And so I think we have to always be aware that metadata is personal information and it is entitled to privacy protection under our Constitution. You know, we have been talking for quite a while, and I'm sure uh, there, there, uh, there are some young people also listening to you, and they must be wondering, uh, you know, what, uh, where are you from and what inspired you to study law? Because you, I'm sure, have created such compassion and passion on, of, uh, for our listeners, and they must want to know a little bit more about you before we finish. Oh, my goodness. Um, I, you know, um, I, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't grow up thinking that I'd be a lawyer. I, I don't even know that I thought I'd go to university. Um, but I've always been very preoccupied with issues of uh, justice. I've always had a bit of an underdog complex, uh, maybe a little like, you know, some of the best senators. Um, and yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I, ended up, I ended up in law school because um, it, was, it was a way to, to think about justice it, through action. Uh, you know, uh, um, law reorganizes relationships of power. It is uh, in Canada, one of the, you know, uh, the justice system is is how we uh, have, have really built and fought for a number of some of the most important constitutional rights. And I wanted to be part of that uh, tradition and the, the, the critical tradition of fighting for our rights through the courts. Um, so uh, that, I mean, you know, uh, it, I don't know that it's an... I don't know it's a, that it's a replicable career path. I certainly um, did a bunch of different things and failed a lot along the way and took a lot of kind of unusual risks, but um, it brings me a tremendous amount of joy and I'd recommend it to just about anyone, um, you know. So I don't know. Yeah, go to school, read everything. That's, that's the only advice I have. Read everything and take all the risks. Yeah, that's true. That's my belief too. So I, I hope you will agree to come back uh, and give us some other uh, interesting perspectives on your work. And this has been a real honor. And I could ask you so many more questions, but uh, uh, I don't want to over, uh, you know, work you today. And so (laughs) I want to just say to you, thank you. Thank you for agreeing when uh, 
you are so busy and uh, and you still agreed and I hope you will agree again. It's been a real honor to have you on today. Thank you so much, Lex. Thank you. And until next time. Thank you. And have a good day. Bye. Happy Canada Day. Oh, thank you. You too. <laughs>